Hey there, I'm Lucas Fitz. If you know me, you know two things to be true. I love a good pair of denim, and I'm always here for the stories. When I first got into the heritage goods movement and buying intentionally, I looked to American Field as an industry leader in connecting cool brands to cool consumers. There's nothing better than hearing the story behind how a big idea grew into a business. Now, we're bringing it online and inviting you to join in the conversation, whether you're watching or listening along from wherever you call home. I'll be hosting these fireside chats, intimate, personal looks at the inner workings of some of our favorite brands on our AF network. So, sit down, grab a whiskey or coffee or beer, and ride along as we shine the spotlight on real people and real stories. This is AF Fireside. Today's episode is presented by Jamestown, a global real estate investment and management company known for transforming spaces into innovation hubs and community centers. Learn more at jamestownlp.com. All right. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to AF Fireside. We are kicking off the weekend a little early this week. We're talking cocktails today. Stoked to have Tori Pratt from Pratt Standard with us on the podcast today. How's it going, Tori? I'm, I'm pretty good today. How are you, Lucas? I'm, I'm doing pretty good. I'm doing pretty good. It's great to, great to see you. Great to talk to you. Uh, always love to talk craft cocktails. And you are, I, I will say, super passionate about what you do. So I'm always stoked to talk to somebody that loves what they're doing. I think it's hard not to be like super passionate about cocktails. Um, I get yeah. to wake up and like literally one of my jobs this morning at 8 a.m. was to test a few cocktails. So my job is literally to drink on the job. Uh, tough tough life. Tough Very life. Tough. How do you do you like you have to pace yourself or? Yeah, I do a lot of like throwing out of alcohol. It feels like okay. sacrilege, okay. but like I otherwise I could not function. Yeah, totally. <laughs> I also That's make fair. a lot of mocktails, like so many mocktails. Yeah. I feel that. I feel, do you have, have like friends that come in taste test? Oh yeah. Um, we actually have, our pod is um, us, our neighbors and our like neighbors, best friends and their kid. Um, and so they are my regular uh, t- taste testers in the last year, but normally it's just my husband and I just get okay. him drunk all the time. So I like that. So you almost have like a little speakeasy in your own house. We actually do. I'll, I'll actually show it to you. Um, but okay. it, it's, it's a little, uh, it's a bar that exists between our two houses. Um, no we actually okay. built a little like, so we had a wall between our two townhouses and then we decided to build a bar there instead, just cause we liked hanging out with them. <laughs> very cool. Very, very cool. Awesome. So for people that may not know the brand yet, or just learning about you for the first time, we've picked up, we're talking booze, we're talking cocktails, but could you just give us a rundown of Pratt standard in a sentence or two? Absolutely. So Pratt Standard is a craft cocktail ingredient company, and we make 11 different types of craft cocktail syrups to help home bartenders up their game. Very cool. How did you how did you come into the world of craft cocktails? Did you come from the bar industry? I actually didn't. So I did international development work for about five years after um, after school, but I, I grew up around the food industry. My mom was a caterer and she and my dad started a smoked seafood business together when I was little. So I always loved amazing food and beverage, but I didn't really realize how integral it was to my life until college. Um, and in college, I got to college and I lost the freshman 15 instead of gaining it uh, because I didn't have my mom's amazing food anymore. And so I taught myself how to cook. And one of my projects post school was uh, actually creating a tonic syrup because I had had a local gin and tonic 
and I absolutely hated the tonic water. I loved the gin, hated the tonic. So I looked at the back of the bottle, realized it was loaded with high fructose corn syrup, synthetic additives, all that stuff, and um, said there had to be a way this was made before the, all that stuff. So went back into the history, came up with a uh, authentic tonic syrup recipe and started selling it. And now here we are like six years later and we have 11 different um, products all built off of that same premise of making things authentically and naturally. Very cool. So you had this like this deep love of food and of, you know, consuming finer goods. When did the, when did the realization come that you wanted to be an entrepreneur and what was that like? Well, it's funny. I was actually talking to somebody about this yesterday and I was saying that in college, you know, studying international development, I was definitely, I was one of those people who was very anti-capitalist. And then I went in and I did international development work and, you know, supported. Um, so I actually worked with the Philippines for um, a couple of years, um, helping uh, basically automate their court systems. Um, and then I just realized that I really love doing things with my hands. So I am a tinkerer and I love doing things um, where I create things. And I <laughs> sold my first bottle of tonic syrup and I realized that I wasn't actually anti-capitalist. I was just <laughs> pro-craft. Um, totally. And I loved selling and feeling the validation of having a bottle of my syrup, you know, be a, a joy to somebody. Uh, and that's what we strive to still do every day. Very cool. So six years deep, congratulations, first of all, that's, that's a big one, especially considering that you made it through 2020 and 2020 is equal to five years. Um, and so, so let's think, you know, you're, you're dealing with recipes all the time. You're creating recipes. What would you say from in your experience is the recipe for a successful brand, successful startup? Absolutely. So, I mean, that's a really good parallel. I think that the recipe for a successful startup really has to do with treating your a business like an experiment, um, because a lot of people are are super um, they're super tied into what their their singular idea is. Like when I started this business, I thought I was actually going to launch a line of different tonic syrups. But then I asked my customers, what do you actually what do you want? Um, do you want another flavored tonic next or uh, what are you looking for? And someone said, I want a grenadine. And I said, OK, well, I guess I'll go look into the history of grenadine, make an authentic grenadine. Um, and uh, a lot of this business has been built on just creating something, testing it, seeing if it works, and then iterating and doing it again. And in a lot of ways, that's exactly how you make a good recipe. So you try first, you know, a one ingredient and then another ingredient and then a different process. And then you try different temperatures and you make it all work, um, but you just keep iterating over and over again. And the biggest key to it is knowing that failure is a good thing, um, as long as you learn from it. So you have to fail. If you're succeeding all the time, then like, it's not possible. You can't possibly be succeeding right. all the time. Um, so it's about accepting and like being uh, understanding of your failures and then iterating and, and creating new solutions off of that. Totally. So that's a really, really great mindset to be in. And, and I'm glad you brought it up because I was, I was thinking, right. You say experimenting and experimenting means trial and error. And Obviously, we're talking about the success or talking about the trial, but you have to look at failure equally, if not heavier. And you have this great mindset on it. I'm sure you didn't go into it with that. How did you how did you develop 
uh, that the ability to think that way? Um, I think it's something that ends up being beaten into you by failure over and over. Mm-hmm. Um, because if you don't fail enough, like you're just tied into success all the time. So I definitely am. I'm a super type A personality. I went to Georgetown undergrad. I graduated like magna cum laude. I am that person. Mm-hmm. And then I started this business and I was like, okay, none of that's actually important. Shoot. What do I do? Um, and I kept failing and I hated it. I hated it so much. Um, but then once you, once you get, this sounds like really depressing, but once you get like beaten down by failure enough, you realize, okay, well, I just, I just got to learn from this and I got to, I got to do something different. Um, and so it just became a process for me after that. Totally. What's been the hardest failure to overcome for you? Oof. Um, the hardest failure for me to overcome is never feeling like my business is where I want it to be. If you are an entrepreneur, you always feel like your business is like three steps behind where you think it should be, even though you look back at the like last six months and like, it's a crazy set of successes. Right. Um, but it's really hard to, is it, that is something I struggle with all the time. Right. Yeah. There's, it, it's hard to explain that phenomenon where like, what someone else might see as a hundred percent. I'm only seeing a 70% at best. Exactly. No, I'm that way. Yeah. I'm that way in the kitchen where it's like, you know, watch enough chopped, watch enough Anthony Bourdain where I want to be, I want to be capable of something higher. Right. And I might look really good. It's like girlfriend's like, Oh yeah, it looks great. It's awesome. Tastes good. But it's like, it's not where I want it to be. Just take a compliment. (laughs) But it is something that you kind of have to, you have to factor into your process. And I think you're right. It, It takes, I'm not saying I'm there yet, but it takes enough time of kind of getting knocked off your feet to then totally. figure out figure out how it works. But we celebrate those victories uh, and we ultimately create really cool things out of them. Yeah, I don't think you ever feel like you're there, right? Yeah. Like, I, I mean, I think it, as I'm getting older, I'm realizing that there is there's no plateau in life. Like everybody, like you, you, you grow up thinking that there's going to be some plateau where everything gets easy and that's yeah. just not how it is. Yeah. Um, and I'm finally at the point where I'm trying to figure out how to enjoy the process instead of enjoying totally. the end result. Yeah. I had that. I kind of had a similar realization a couple months ago um, in comparing the lifestyle that, that I live to people that live a more traditional kind of, I went to school for this. I, trained for this. Now I do this. What's it, what is it like to like accomplish your goal? And then, and I don't want to say coast, cause it's not like people don't have the aptitude or, or want to get better, but what's it like to like achieve that and be like, yep, this is my life now. <laughs> well, the funny thing is I think I would hate it. Right. Yeah. So like, I think that like I was never built for that life. I was just trained to think that that was how life was going to be. But yeah. I, I, I'm the person who can never sit still. So yeah. like during, um, during the pandemic, I was like, I need, I need a hobby to keep me from getting like absolutely crazy on the weekends. And I need to do something with my hands so that I'm not looking at my phone all the time. Yeah. So oh. I, 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 I know, which is like such a problem. <laughs> So I took up leather crafting because I was like, oh, I okay. just, I like making things. And so I'm just going to, I'm just going to make some stuff and I'm going to figure out how this all works. And it was, you know, a really great thing to distract me. Um, cool. And no, I'm not starting a business on it yet. I've been <laughs> asked, but I have another business that I'm already doing. I can't. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> I mean, but you got to have multiple things going at multiple burners, cooking at different speeds at all times. I, I, I get, I feel that definitely feel that. So I want to kind of go back for a second to 
you know, this realization you had about not being anti-capitalist, being pro-craft. And, and I'm a very visual thinker, right? The visual in my head there is the circle within the bigger circle. Mm-hmm. And that kind of draws back to this other concept of being, I don't want to say an, I don't want to say, say an underdog, but when you look at the huge, look at the alcohol industry, right? Huge, huge names, huge regulated names and presences. And to be a craft brand in a very occupied space and industry um, must pose a lot of challenges <laughs> uh, and it must yeah. be hard to feel like you're getting ahead. How do you, how do you kind of, how do you occupy that space? I don't even know how to say it. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I totally hear what you're saying. So um, it's actually really interesting because it's something where originally in the first couple of years, this business, I did feel dwarfed by those companies mm-hmm. until I realized that we have a value add that they don't, which is that we teach people how to make cocktails. And there are, there's a lot to that. Like I've talked to some massive brands who have no idea how to make a cocktail with their spirit, which is crazy to me, absolutely nuts. Cause that's what people are doing with it, right? And so um, I kind of feel uh, like we've got this secret sauce um, and we're on the cusp of massive growth as a business because we see something that they don't. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's always the benefit of an underdog is that you're going to look at things differently. You're not just going to look at, you know, how many cases are we selling through um, in a certain account? You're going to look at, oh, shoot, I don't have money in my bank account at the end of this week. How am I going to make that happen? Right. And it makes you scrappy and it makes you crazy. And it makes you think about and innovate in a way that the big guys cannot. Mm-hmm. Um, so, that's how I occupy that small space by thinking that, you know, we're offering something that they can't. Yeah. Do you think that that's applicable across all industries? I, I can't say I'm an expert, but I would say it probably is. Yeah. You know? It feels like it's pretty applicable. Yeah. No matter, I think no matter where a, you're standing. It's a, it's a mindset, right? It's, right. it's whether it's kind of what we were talking about before it's, are you coasting or are you innovating all the time? And yeah. If you're coasting, then you're, you're just accepting status quo. And eventually somebody who is innovating is going to take over whatever the status quo is. Um, and so, and it's just going to keep happening like that. So if we can be always on the innovating side, like I always tell my team, I want us to be innovating all the time. I want us to like our, one of our company values is just do it, which means just like, just take your feet and step off of that cliff. I want you to mm-hmm. fail. I want you to fail. I want you to experiment. I want you to take those risks and we will reward those risks, even if they end in failure, um, because that's important to us as a business. Mm-hmm. Very cool. So in order to stay competitive with, you know, with the big names and the big competitors, how hard do you lean on like buzzword differentiators? You know, I'm thinking like sustainability, community, Uh, Those are big ones in kind of across the market. What are those big words in your industry and how do you relate to them? 
Yeah. Um, I, to be honest, we don't lean into a lot of big words because a lot of people, you can't fulfill a lot of those big words, right? I look at a lot of companies that say we are, you know, we're environmentally friendly and we, you know, support um, other, we support minorities and we do all these other things. And all they're saying is that they, they support them, not that they actually have anything behind it. Right. Sure. So, or they're not actively working against it. <laughs> right. Or, or work they're using it as a way to sell their product, which Man. to be yeah. honest, that, that feels really dirty to me in a yeah. way. Um, and Let, so, let's not even talk about metal straws. No, no, definitely <laughs> not. Definitely not. That's can't, like can't the quickest go. way to go zero to 50 real fast. <laughs> yeah, no, no, there are a lot of things like that that infuriate me. And so it's important to me that um, if we do say that we are going to do something to support a buzzword or something like that mm -hmm. means we do it in a real way. Sure. So for example, last year, um, we during uh, during a lot of the Black Lives Matter protests, we decided that we were going to give a portion of our revenues, not our profits, um, to uh, Bread for the City, which is a organization in D.C. that helps to um, alleviate poverty um, nice. and racism, which I think is awesome. But we didn't like put it out everywhere, right? Because yeah. it's just something that you do because you are doing the right thing. Right. Um, so there are some probably buzzwords that like we do use authenticity is one of them so mm -hmm. we lean into authenticity in all parts of the business that means we're never going to use weird ingredients we're always going to use things that are understandable we're going to make everything the way that it used to be made um, in the right way um, and that stuff we lean into heavily and we always follow those values um, but yeah I mean I have trouble with a lot of the the buzzword stuff <laughs> personally so how do you how do you define uh, craft, the word craft, the concept behind a craft product as it relates to the brand? So for me, craft means that um, if I could, if I go back into the kitchen, I could still make that product. Mm -hmm. um, our product right now, um, the way it is produced, like I'm not cooking it every day. Um, we have a team that cooks it, but if I can still make that product and it's based off of my original recipe, then it's craft. But I think it's also sticky craft. Yeah. And, and also like craft cocktail is also kind of a sticky questionable one because mm -hmm. there are a lot of times where something is premium, but it's not craft. I think it has to do with um, how involved you are um, as, throughout all levels of the business with the details. Um, sure. And I would say that, I don't know, the craft is a weird word. Yeah, it's, it's kind of a weird double-edged sword because as a small business, as an underdog, as a, you know, be a small fish in a big pond where there are much bigger fish, you have the ability to kind of determine what those words mean to the business. And it's the onus is on you to then educate your consumers to understand that this is what craft, this is what sustainable, this is what community, this is what heritage means to Pratt standard. But you're working against what the common understanding is based upon what the bigger fish are putting yeah. out there. And I think that's a really unique challenge. Uh, and especially in a perishable food beverage brand to ensure that that story is being told effectively through wholesale accounts. And, and I assume oh. that wholesale is a, a really huge, I mean, I know I've, I've seen you at Whole Foods before. Yeah. Um, you do a lot of wholesale. How do you tell that story effectively? 
So um, that is very hard to do, but a lot of our, so we, we strategically pick our wholesale accounts, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm not, I'm not going to go and sell in Target right now because it doesn't make sense. Sure. Um, you know, it's never going to appear craft in Target. And I also don't think it would sell, like it's not the right customer base. Um, and so with our like work with Whole Foods, so I launched a bar program with them across the mid-Atlantic region in 16 locations. And part of launching that bar program was that the, uh, the menu would have our name on it and it would include all of our syrups. And then also I would train all the bartenders. So last February before lockdowns, I actually, well, January and February, I traveled um, all throughout the mid Atlantic region, just training all the whole foods bartenders. Um, And that was a great way to, you know, ensure that we have brand spokespeople standing behind our stuff in a way that they've met me, you know, they know me, I spend an hour with each one of them. Um, And that's not sustainable, right? It's not something that I can do everywhere. But it's something that we do with our other wholesale partners who are places like distilleries and Mm -hmm. small distilleries, you know, we're often working with small craft distilleries um, that are, which is actually a technical term, um, and it's under a certain amount of production. Um, And we work with them regularly um, and we sell through their distilleries. And that, you know, that works well because they understand what we're doing. They understand craft, the products work well together. Everything about that works well. Mm -hmm. Totally. So do I'm I'm gonna kind of group these small micro distilleries in with boutique retail stores. Mm -hmm. And and sounds like, you know, this, the plan that you have for these major retailers where you're able to go and do these trainings, do you have to tweak that formula for these smaller retailers that are trying to ensure that that wealth is spread among 200 other brands, let's say in a store, I know that's a, probably a pretty high estimate for some places, but let's say 200 other brands in a small store with a much smaller staff, how do you have to tweak that formula to ensure that it's still effective? Yeah, I mean, a lot of the time it means that uh, that we have to figure out a way to con- connect with those customers offline. So mm-hmm. those people need to buy our product, go home, and then there needs to be a, a way for us to reach out to them, mm-hmm. which, you know, we put out our recipes on the back of the bottle. We have a QR code that goes to a recipes web app. There are lots of different ways to interface with your customer base. Um, and that is one of the best ways because a lot of people will buy a craft cocktail syrup. They'll get sold on it in a store. And then they'll go home and be like, wait, what was I supposed to do? Um, And then they take a look at the back of the bottle and they're like, okay, well, maybe I'll just follow this recipe or, okay, uh, I want to make something else. So I'll just go to this recipes web app. Um, And then you have an opportunity to connect with them there and like make your brand story known and all of that, Um, which will hopefully, you know, lead to uh, better customer retention and brand adoption. Yeah. So it's almost like you have to trace someone else's steps back from the desired result and then is that like that seems like a kind of a fun process to figure out how oh yeah how people are going to think and engage with things well it's so much fun and it's also something that not every company does so um like if like i was talking about big liquor companies before if they had actually thought about the fact that their customers are taking their stuff home and then they're opening it and probably mixing it with something they would have developed more resources on how to mix your stuff with other stuff Right, right? right because that whole customer process like 
our goal, when I tell uh, like my staff, our goal, I mean, there's a lot of goals that we have that are not product selling related, but when we have goals that are product selling related, it's not selling the first bottle to the person. It's the selling the second bottle to that person, because the second bottle of syrup that we sell that person means that they, they liked the first, they went through it, they used it and they saw value enough to buy it again. Um, And that's when we've got a customer for life. So that that's really the point where we want to get them to. So you have to, you know, you can't think, okay, this person's going to go to Whole Foods, they're going to buy our stuff, and then we're done. We, we did our job, you know, wholesale is done, we're set. It's not like that. Um, it, it, you got to follow them all the way through. Totally. Yeah, it's, it's an exciting thing to think about. It's some, I think it's a daunting thing to think about if you haven't thought about it before as an entrepreneur. And I think also, you know, as a, as a consumer, it's cool to think, what do they, what do they want me to do? <laughs> What's the goal here? And just for, you know, for folks that might be listening, just as a consumer, it's, it's a fun activity to kind of engage in as you're impulse buying or intentionally buying. Right. I love and, it. I mean, I love the, it. Other, the other thing about that is that like a lot of people like develop a brand and they're like, this is such a cool brand. I love selling my brand, but your brand is only what your customer thinks your brand is. Oh my God. That is the, the thing. Yeah. <laughs> I and so- a dollar for every time I've said that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's, it's a true one. That's, that it's is real. One. Yeah. Oh, I love it. All right. Uh, let's close out. Let's go back to recipes. Recipes are the thought of the day. Mm-hmm. What is, what's the cocktail of the year? What's the quarantine cocktail that, that got you through? Oof. Um, a, a lot of cocktails, like <laughs> all the cocktails. Um, I made a lot of penicillins, which I felt like is very on, on, uh, on trend. And also a little medicinal, a little medicinal. Yeah. Little <laughs> yeah. I always call it like adult medicine. Um, so it's, it's scotch. Um, my recipe is two ounces of blended scotch uh, shaken with uh, a half ounce of lemon juice, a half ounce of our ginger syrup, um, and a quarter ounce of our rich simple syrup, and then strained into a glass, and then you float with about a quarter ounce of Isla scotch. And okay. that that tastes like adult medicine. Um, okay. it, it's awesome. <laughs> cool. I'm going to have to do some very serious work on improving my tolerance <laughs> for when we get back to event season for yeah, sure. I understand that. Well, I can help you there. Um, okay. so if you awesome. need any assistance, you let me know. Definitely. Definitely will do. Tori, mm-hmm. where's the best place for people that are interested in learning more to keep in touch with the brand? Yeah, absolutely. So you can check us out on Instagram. We're at Pratt Standard. And then you also can check out our website. We're www.prattstandard.com. And we have a bunch of different recipes um, on our website there. So check them out. Um, but also don't be afraid to uh, to reach out to me directly. People think I'm crazy to do this. My phone number is 215-817-4828. Text me your cocktail questions. I love wow. getting them. Um, seriously. You are I know you think, you think I'm crazy, but I, <laughs> I do. love doing that. <laughs> uh, wild. Cool. Well, um, not only have you got to, if, if you're listening in, watching in, not only have you received cocktail advice, so you've also made a friend today. Yeah. Love it. Tori, thanks so much for joining us. This is great. Love your energy and love your insight. Look forward to seeing you and sharing a drink with you again soon. Yeah, exactly. All right. I'll see you soon. Cool. Take care. Bye-bye. Right, bye, Lucas. I'm Lucas Fitz, and this is AF Fireside. To learn more about all the brands featured on the podcast, check out fireside.shopaf.co. And don't forget to subscribe to us on your streaming platform of choice. Thanks for listening. 
Today's episode is presented by Jamestown, a global real estate investment and management company known for transforming spaces into innovation hubs and community centers. Learn more at jamestownlp.com.